0: So this morning, I want to continue with this, um, for me, wonderful theme, and challenging theme of developing equanimity in the midst of action, in the midst of interaction and action, and to find ways to bring the balance, the wisdom, the steadiness, which we cultivate often on the cushion or in our spiritual practice, and how to bring that into uh, action, and especially how to bring it into the challenging situations which arise for us. That was the theme last time. Uh, it's the theme this time. And I'll say in a little while my, my sense of uh, continuing for, for two further times with that theme. But I, I first want to invite us to, just for yourself, bring to mind a challenging situation for yourself in which it's hard to be equanimous. Could be something very personal. Uh, could be, as some people mentioned, in relationship to world events. Whatever, whatever you choose, but choose a situation in which it's hard for you to be equanimous. It's hard for you to be balanced. And just bring that to mind. Reflect on that. Maybe as you reflect further, also reflect after a little while, how might I be more equanimous? And so I'll invite us to keep this situation in mind throughout the talk as a reference point. And you might, as I'm making a certain point or saying something, and in our discussion later, you might ask, how would I bring perspectives, further perspectives and practices to this particular situation? So today I want to continue with that theme. I want to first talk about equanimity in general and some of the qualities of equanimity, how we keep that sense of balance and bring in further and expand some on the teaching model which I gave last time and which I've occasionally talked about, the model of the eight worldly winds, the different ways, which are really the different ways that we get blown off-center and which I invited us to look at during the week last week, in the the talk last time. And so I want to uh, go into a little more depth on that, which is really about some of the ways that we get knocked off-center and how we might work with those situations. And then I'm thinking next week, I'll continue with that theme and bring in some further principles of how to work with equanimity in action. And I'm also thinking of continuing the theme that we looked at last week, which is quite important for me and not generally discussed very much, certainly not in the classical teachings, which is really the role of the body in equanimity, which we explored quite a bit last time. And I'm thinking of uh, next time bringing in a few um, practices, so I'll maybe present some body practices to help with equanimity, and I'm thinking of in uh, I go in two weeks, I go off to teach in Ann Arbor, Michigan, so I'm away. But uh, the following week, I'll be here, and I'm thinking of inviting Tija Bell to come in with us. He's a Qigong and Aikido teacher, and we've worked together quite a lot. He was the he taught embodied practices for our two year training program called The Path of Engagement for Connecting uh, inner practices with social service and social change. and quite wonderful. I'm, you know, I will, we were planning to have lunch that day, so I think he's going to be available. <laughs> <laughs> so I think I will invite him, and he can come in, and we, maybe we'll have a dialogue, and he'll bring in some practices that help with equi- equanimity in action from the point of view of embodied practice, which is quite crucial. And they're quite wonderful, too. You know, so it's, it's, it's actually in the middle of a challenging situation Uh, We sometimes we can have wonderful thoughts, we can work with our heart, but we can actually also actually go into a certain posture or do a certain very simple exercise which basically grounds us and centers us, (coughs) leads us to balance. Very simple. We can do it in in like one minute and it can make significant differences in how we relate to situations. I imagine many of you do this already or have something like that in your repertoire, but I'm thinking of um, giving some focus on that in, in next week and then two weeks from that date and bringing in uh, Tijan. So that's my, that's my sense and I'll invite us continually uh, to refer to your own experiences here today and then in the interim in the, in the next week try to bring some of your try to bring attention to the situations that call for equanimity in which you may fall out of balance, the and we'll, we'll um, invite us to look at that and bring back notes. And my hope today, I say this sometimes, I don't always make good on it, but I really want to hear from people's experiences. So I'm going to do my best efforts to not talk too much and, and have time for, time for a discussion. So, and I thought I'd also start with a um, wonderful quotation from Mark Twain, basically about learning from our difficult experiences and he, it goes like this. Good judgment comes from experience. Experience comes from bad judgment.
1: <laughs>
0: Good judgment comes from experience. Experience <laughs> comes from bad judgment. Well, thank you. Thank you, Mark. Um, so it's this interesting question of how... Do we cultivate equanimity? And how do we cultivate that in our protected environments, our meditation, maybe in our own privacy, and doing that which uh, nurtures us, which which renews us, which supports us? How do we combine that cultivation of balance and equanimity, which is something that (coughs) happens in in our meditation, and maybe a lot of the inner work we do? And how do we combine that with bringing attention to the situations where we're startled, where we are knocked off balance, where we are challenged. And how can we make those parts of our lives uh, uh, situations in which we grow in equanimity and grow in balance, and actually take those as learning situations? You know, that wonderful phrase which I think I gave last week from the Tibetan tradition, turn all obstacles into the path of practice. It's one of my favorite statements. You know, that's easier said than done, but when we take our challenges as opportunities for learning, our practice uh, grows quickly, can really accelerate. And so we can ask what training helps. It's really useful to uh, invite being tested. You know, just think of... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you know that we can that we can do that and there's a um, wonderful story that from the teachings of the buddha called the story of the mistress vedahika which is a wonderful story of a i don't know wonderful brutal story of a of a, a woman named vedahika who had a very good reputation uh, for being nice and developed and so forth and she had a maid named Kali, which you can, can kind of tell is a little bit of a, little bit of a setup, right? So, and Kali said, uh, it occurred to Kali, a good reputation has spread about my lady. This mistress, v- Vedahika is gentle. She is meek. She is calm. Could it be that she does have anger, which she does not show? Or does she really have no anger? For it is because I am so good at my job that she, although she does have anger, does not express it. I think I will test her. <laughs> 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 and, so, and so she got up late and wasn't doing her work. And Vedahika said, why do you get up so late? Oh, it is nothing, lady. What? That is nothing indeed. You bad maidservant, you got up late. Angry and displeased, she frowned. then it occurred to Kali though she does have anger she does not show it it is not that she does not have anger it is because I am so good in my job why don't I test her further (laughs) and she got up even later and Vedahika said hey you Kali (laughs) (laughs) what is it lady why do you get up even later than before oh it is nothing what? It is nothing, you bad maidservant. You got up even later, angry and displeased. She gave vent to her displeasure. Then it occurred to the maidservant, Collie, and She says the same things, and I will test her further. <coughs> and she got up even later than before, and, and she said, Oh, it is nothing. And Kali said, What? It is nothing. You got up so late, angry and displeased she hit her on the head with a door bar. (laughs) And Kali, with her head injured and blood oozing, (laughs) went about among the neighbors shouting, Look, sirs, look at the deeds of the gentle one. Look, sirs, at the deed of the meek one. Look at the deed of the calm one. And so on. And at this point, the Buddha ends the story and pronounces his understanding of what it means. He says, some person can be very gentle, meek, and calm so long as disagreeable ways of speech do not assail that person. But when disagreeable ways of speech or behavior assail that person, it is only then that the person can be judged as to really whether there is calm, whether there is wisdom, and so forth. Hmm. 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 Okay. So it's really just to say that it can be valuable to take our challenges as places to learn. And to see that um, these powerful qualities that we talk about a lot here, mindfulness and equanimity and compassion and so forth, for most of us um, can grow. And one of the ways they grow is through our challenges. Simple point, really. But it's something that we often want to think, my challenges helped me to learn. And they are all in the past. <laughs> We may think. So, any case. So, as we develop equanimity, we do develop these qualities. I want to mention some of the qualities further. Uh, we develop a sense of, of balance. You know, it's really the the literal meaning of upekka, which is for which we translate equanimity as balance. That... Um, um, uh, well-known monk, uh, Nyanaponika Thera, who wrote The Heart of Buddhist Meditation, says, equanimity is the inner center of the world. And I, I, when, when I hear that, I often think of the uh, uh, Jewish myth of the uh, Lamed Vov. Some of you may know that. It's the myth of the 36 just persons, who, who actually, many of them are unknown. They're not necessarily famous. But they, those 36 persons, by being fully what uh, developed, equanimous, they hold together the world. And if they weren't, it's a myth, you know. And if they weren't doing their work, the world would fall apart, you know. And they're not necessarily again that famous. It could be just a shopkeeper in whatever the Bronx or something, you know, or or a grandmother there. So, um, equanimity has that sense of balance. We can be with what arises. And we, again, we cultivate that in our meditation. We can cultivate it through being with the challenges. It has a quality of non-reactivity. We, again, we need to learn by working with challenging experiences. How can you be non-reactive with something which tends to make us reactive? And so we practice. This is a lot of our practice on the cushion. When we sit, when we've had a difficult situation occur with a friend or family member or partner or whatever, and we sit with it on the cushion, we're developing equanimity. When we get out of balance and then come back to balance. And meditation is continually this quality of losing balance and coming back, losing balance and coming back, losing balance and coming back. back. Um, That's really how it works. It's not so much... I know when I started meditation, I thought that meditation was just about going to greater and greater levels of bliss, happiness, understanding, calm, peace, and wisdom. (laughs) That perspective lasted about half an hour. (laughs) So it's about finding balance, losing balance, finding balance. It's, It's actually like much of our lives, like walking. If you study walking carefully, you'll see that we actually, every step we take, we lose balance for a little while, and then we regain it. Interesting metaphor. You know, walking the path is about losing balance, finding balance, and so forth. Interesting to look at when you get up from here, watch your walking carefully. Those of you who've done a lot of walking meditation know that. We do slow walking, you can feel the precariousness of of walking. So we learn how to be non-reactive with what tends to make us reactive. We learn how to be more even with, with any experience. And I brought in, um, to illustrate the quality of evenness, I brought in a bunch of haikus. Some of them from Japan and some of them from the United States. And these are haikus that, for me, show the quality of evenness with experience. And the first three are from Japan, and they all concern fleas. Um, I was talking with Wes Nisker a week or two ago, and he was uh, he was bringing in haikus. We were teaching parallel retreats together and Wes had some haikus and those involve flies a lot. I don't know why but, you know, the great haiku writers come from uh, 18th and 19th century Japan and there must have just been a lot of flea infestation in the houses, <laughs> I think, because, well, listen to these. Um, well, the first one, only partly about fleas, this is from Basho, the great haiku writer. Fleas, lice, the horse pissing near my pillow. <laughs> I interpret that as equanimity haiku because he's, I mean, it's a translation, so you never, but I interpret that as just very descriptive, matter of fact, not complaining, not saying next time I'll put the horse somewhere else. Heard too from Issa, also a great haiku writer. I quoted Issa last week. Another haiku. I'm sorry it's so small, but please do practice your jumping fleas of the house. I'm sorry. I'm sorry it's so small, but please do practice your jumping fleas of the house. What's it? The house? The house. Okay. Yeah, these are a little subtle. <laughs> so, um, the last one. It's, it, it has reference to a place called Matsushima, which is this beautiful, sacred place in Japan. Now, you fleas, you shall see Matsushima. Off we go.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
0: and maybe the... Remember, these are all expressions of equanimity. Maybe the one of the great 21st century training grounds for equanimity, <laughs> is being at the computer. Hmm, uh, mm, now we're getting serious. <laughs> okay. That I know from... Um, it's interesting, in my experience, when I think back, before... Actually, before I got my new computer about two years ago, before I got a Mac, um, <laughs> I experienced... Uh, you know, I don't get angry that much, but I experienced more anger towards my computer than towards people. Not so frequently, but some, I admit admit that. Um, Anyway, here are some some computer equanimity haikus, okay? Some of you may have seen these, these are sort of gone around the internet, but your file was so big, it might be very useful, but now it is gone.
1: (laughs) See if I can get through these. Okay. Okay.
0: Yesterday it worked. Today it is not working. (laughs) Windows is like that. Yesterday it worked, today it is not working. Windows is like that. (laughs) The last haiku, three from Japan, three from the US computers. First snow, then silence. This thousand-dollar screen dies so beautifully. (laughs) first snow, then silence. This $1,000 screen dies so beautifully. So I don't know if any of us practice equanimity quite in the ways that the haiku point to, but but actually something to think about at the computer, right? Next time you're at the computer and something doesn't quite work, an experience which might be yours quite soon today, (laughs) you can think, ah, equanimity practice. Okay, so um, so we have these qualities of balance, of evenness, of non-reactivity, quality of unshakability. And I think another quality can be there really, I think ultimately as we develop an equanimity, there's a quality also of faith, you know, something about being able to stay with experience which I think is linked with unshakability. And I was thinking of this beautiful story which I heard once in a sermon from uh, Martin Luther King, Jr., which uh, was a story of a real turning point for him when he was quite young. I think he would have been <coughs> 27. He was involved. Some of you may <coughs> know the story of the um, Birmingham campaign in 1955-56, the desegregation campaign. And he was at a, at a phase in the campaign where he was getting frustrated and discouraged. And he was also physically very tired and kind of at a low point. And he had this experience one night. Um, he came home late, you know, 11 or so, midnight or so, and his, uh, yeah, his wife and two young children were asleep. And he got a telephone call. At, at that time there were not answering machines, and he picked it up and answered him. It was basically a hate call, you know saying, listen, and it was the N-word, we've taken all we want from you, before next week you'll be sorry you ever came to Montgomery. Right? And that was at midnight. And he was already at a low point, and it sort of toppled him into confusion and despair at that point. And he sat down, he said, at the um, kitchen table, and he got a cup of coffee, and he started looking for where his refuge was. And he looked through some of his theology books, and they weren't much help. And he thought, you know, my parents are in Atlanta, which is 175 miles away. I can't really make use of them. I can't make use of my theology books. And he said, I'll have to do what my father used to say to do. His father was a preacher. I'll have to really have recourse to... In, in his life, what was most powerful and what was something he could call on. He, so he called on God at that moment. And he prayed out loud. He said uh, something like, I am here in Montgomery taking a stand for what I believe is right. But now I am afraid that the people are looking to me for leadership. And if I stand them before them without strength and courage, they too will falter. I am at the end of my powers. I have nothing left. I've come to the point where I can't face it alone, you know. And he was talking about giving up, you know. And very powerfully, he said at that point, he heard a voice that spoke uh, somehow through him, and it said, Stand up for righteousness, Martin Luther. Stand up, and I will be at your side forever. And um, that had a very intense impact on him. And actually, some of those telephone callers acted. Three days later, his house was bombed. Oh. And luckily, no one was hurt, but his house was bombed. And he said that at his press conference, he had the memory of that experience. You know. <coughs> And he, there were, people were amazed at the level of equanimity that he had. And I don't so much say that to say that um, we need to have that level, you know, something like that experience, but more to say that as we continue deepening, we do have experiences that take us further into that quality of balance and unshakability and faith. And I think probably we each have had experiences, maybe something like that. That, that teach us, you know, and, and that ultimately that deep equanimity comes from having gone very deeply into our own <coughs> minds and hearts and into, in, into life itself. Very powerful story for me. And there, there are recordings where King tells that himself that are quite remarkable to listen to, They're quite, quite powerful. And so we have that faith and unshakability as part of a mature equanimity. There is a quality of wisdom. There's a sense, uh, you know, last time I talked about it in terms of having a sense of the causes and conditions leading to a, a given situation. You know, and sometimes we can look at a challenging situation and say, what were the causes and conditions that led to this? If it's a difficult relationship, what's there in my history that made this possible? What's there in the other person's history? We can look maybe to an institutional situation or even something in terms of some of the national or international events. We can look to causes and conditions, you know. So I think of Doctor Arya Ratney from Sri Lanka, who had a major role in ending the civil war in Sri Lanka, and he said we have to now have a five hundred year plan. The conflict took five hundred years to develop. We need a five hundred years to resolve it, not to resolve it in two years, you know, so there was you know, a year ceasefire and five years building up the infrastructure and 20 years getting really to know the people with whom was in conflict and, you know, 50 years of developing strong conflict transformation cultures, that sort of thing. So, 500-year plan, you know, a long perspective, you know, can really help with equanimity. Um, It's a beautiful quotation that I have from Joanna Mesa, Grona Macy, when I interviewed her for uh, my book on uh, the Engaged Spiritual Life, she uh, loved talking about equanimity, and she gave an even longer view than 500 years. She gave, a, actually, a um, uh, four-and-a-half-billion-year perspective. <laughs> she said, If we are not separate from the living world, then we should act our age. We are four-and-a-half-billion years old in terms of the origins of life, and 15 billion years old in terms of the Big Bang. Every atom and every molecule and every cell of our body goes back the 15 million years. The life that is now beating in our hearts and breathing our lungs now didn't begin with our conception. Rather, life flows through us. For me, this is a wonderful doorway into equanimity. We can also feel the presence of future and past generations encircling us, cultivating a sense of our collegiality with them, serving them as companions on this awesome journey. I would call this an ordinary person's version of equanimity. I am just part of this great story. This helps us as activists to give up trying to do it all in our lifetimes or to succeed as the most effective social change agent the world has ever seen, the peerless defender of the rainforest or the conqueror of the evil empire. Rather, there's a web of life that's much bigger than us. We're just part of the story. Quite something, huh? And so we develop the wisdom aspect of equanimity and the heart aspect that I mentioned, that that equanimity can get distorted and not have the heart, that it has to have that quality of compassion, really, also, and and even a sense of joy. And I think, and and then that aspect of embodiment, again, which isn't mentioned typically classically, I think, so I'd like to think of mature equanimity as also involving the wise, embodied heart, we might say one way to say it, that just rest in this wise, embodied, heartful awareness, you know, and something we can sometimes practice uh, on retreats, sometimes just resting in something quite deep, maybe resting like in the Joanna Macy uh, reference, you know, to rest in something very large and to feel that can be very, very beautiful. And so we have these qualities that we mentioned last time, the eight worldly wins are ways that we get knocked off-center. You know, and we can remember the... and look at them, you know, these four pairs of pleasure and pain, gain and loss, fame and disrepute, and praise and blame. These are really... uh, This teaching really helps us to look at some of the fundamental ways that we lose equanimity, right? We study them. And so it's a very beautiful teaching to look at, whether it's on the cushion or in the midst of action that if we actually remember those eight, and maybe we don't look at all eight, maybe we just look at two of them, or one set, you know, and say, for this next week, I'm going to look at every time that pleasure and pain, pleasure or pain, knocks me around, or gain or loss, or praise or blame. It's a very, it's a very powerful teaching. The Buddha uh, talked about this in, in one, of the, one of the texts. He says, these eight conditions keep the world turning around. These eight conditions of gain and loss, fame and disrepute, praise and blame, uh, pleasure and pain. So I think I'll just look at each of them and then we can open things up. Um, pleasure and pain are happening all the time in a spectrum from that goes from the most intense pleasure on one side all the way to the most intense pain on the other, and hangs out a lot in the middle, in a more neutral place. right? But that we're often experiencing mild discomfort or mild, mild pleasure. And it's something really to look at. It's something that in our practice we can actually, on the cushion, we could take a sitting and just track when the unpleasant appears and when the pleasant appears. It's actually a formal practice that is often done on retreats. I have did, did it once, for about a week just doing that, just tracking pleasure and pain and also the neutral. And we can watch sometimes how it appears, you know, and how it can really uh, knock us off center, particularly when it's strongly pleasant or strongly unpleasant, you know, because the tendency is when there's something strongly pleasant, we'll be knocked off center by grabbing hold of it. How can I continue? How can I keep this, you know, or... or. um, with the unpleasant, more obvious, we kind of tense around physical pain, or we uh, tense and tell stories around emotional pain, and so forth. So just to study that can be very, very powerful. To look and to actually study what is pleasure like, what is the unpleasant like, you know. There's nothing in itself problematic about the un- the pleasant or the unpleasant. I, I think I may have told this story, but um, I once, you know, I have a twice a week meditation group in Berkeley and I mentioned once to them that there's nothing at all uh, wrong with having a lot of pleasure. Sometimes, you know, spiritual people get serious about that and say, I but, but, there's, but that the problem is the reactions to it or the grabbing hold of the pleasure. I, and I told them, we could just sit here the whole evening eating chocolate. There'd be no problem in that. And so they said, let's do it next time. <laughs> and we did. And we studied, studied the pleasant. You ple- can do that. Assignment.
1: Yep.
0: Study the pleasant chocolate or your other favorite pleasure. You know, Study what it's like. What does the mind do when there's a lot of pleasant sensations? Does it tend to grab hold? Can it really just stay with the experience? For many of us, it's hard actually to stay with the experience of pleasure. That which we want so much, we actually don't actually experience that much. You know, We go to a wonderful restaurant, have wonderful food, and actually spend our time talking. Right? and don't really taste it so much often. You know? So can we sit back and just experience that? What's pleasure like? What's pain like? Just to study it. Same thing with gain and loss. What's the experience like? What happens when we... Um, lose something when there's a loss or when we gain something. I had the experience just yesterday of sitting with this. Um, I was um, leaving my parking space and my my um, my uh, what? The mirror on one of my sides rubbed against the car next to me. It was an awful experience. You know, just, uh, you know, just like three seconds occur and, you know, I think, oh gosh, I'm out a few hundred dollars or something, you know, and I, and I had to sit with that. And just watch my mind, you know, going with that, you know, how it does that. Call that loss, and just sit with it. My, mind, you know, it didn't go too far, and you know, I, I was remembered that I was teaching about equanimity. <laughs> 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 you know. but we can just the uh, the real starting point is not so much to get rid of our reactions, but it's actually to study all this, study gain and loss, study pleasure and pain, study what happens when. Someone maybe says something about you in which you feel your self-image is deprecated or your image to others. Because the, the next set, after gain and loss, is fame and disrepute, which we could say is our how others see us. You know? how, you know, how does that occur for you in your experience? Someone says something nice. Someone says something mean. Someone you know, in your circle of friends spreads something about you. It's very interesting to watch that. Very interesting. I had once the experience of having, having um, uh, done uh, writing and, um, let's see, I, I did a book about 12 years ago on the, um, in part, on the work of Ken Wilber and transpersonal psychology. And um, uh, Mr. Wilber didn't like it so much. Oh. <laughs> interesting person Uh, and he um, in in an article that I believe went to 20,000 people he he didn't focus on on the book but in part he had an extended treatment of what was lacking in some of my in some of my work and it was interesting to get criticized before 20,000 people and watch what my mind did with that
2: by Ken Wilber
0: by someone yeah (laughs) Anyway, there's a long story there, but <laughs> but, uh, but very, very interesting experience, just because I'm, what I'm encouraging us is to watch our minds, pri- primarily. Study our minds, not so much we get rid of this, but take the occurrence of these eight worldly winds as a starting point for exploration and learning. You know? And it means watching us when we're a little uncomfortable, when I'm with that, you know, sitting with, uh, you know, that kind of, uh, with the car, right? Mm-hmm. Anyone else have that? Uh, something like that? Okay. And, and so we, we can work with that. We can look at that. We can notice how much that comes up. See which of these is the strongest for you. You know, look at praise and blame. I think when I look at the set, these four sets, praise and blame probably are most intense for me. Or they, they used to be. I don't know, it's maybe a little less now, but they used to be. Because we, as we get older... Maybe the winds die down a little bit. Does that happen? Mm-hmm. Does anyone have that happen for?
1: Mm-hmm.
3: No. Some, no. Oh. Some situations.
0: A little bit. <laughs> okay. I'm not getting an overwhelming yes. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So we have... So we just can praise and blame, may- maybe for many of us, the most intense, you know. Because probably, what... Uh, Praise and blame for many of us is w- is wired into our nervous system and connected with what we thought we needed to get and get praise, avoid blame at age four in order to survive getting the love of our parents, something like that. And so, uh, the praise and blame may be for many of us the mo- the quite intense in that way. And I it's just to see how sensitive we can be for that. You know, we uh, I've just taught. Uh, a little while ago, just finished teaching um, a retreat, co-teaching on transforming the judgmental mind that actually several of you were at. And I won't, <coughs> won't name names, so you can, but if you see some people who are clearly shifted from their previous judgmental ways, you'll know who it is. Oh. <laughs> no, no, not, not true. <laughs> and, um, you know, and we could see in doing that work uh, how strong a lot of that can be. And we can see a lot of the premise for doing that work is that we often judge ourselves harshly, we often judge others harshly, and when we do so, we put them tremendously often on the defensive, or people get on the defensive when they feel judgment's coming at, at, at them. So really to look at these, at these wins. So first, just to acknowledge them, let them be there, not to get rid of them, to name them, to see them as occurring, to see what our reactions are, to see what th- they're like on the cushion, in the middle of action, to maybe at the end of the day, reflect on them, see what our habitual reactions <coughs> are. A lot of this takes time. We have to look. You know, To develop equanimity, we look at the 50 ways that we're knocked off equanimity, and we study them, and we take notes on them. If you can have a flow chart or an analysis, here is what happens. you know X stimulus happens, I go there great to have like that you know to have and and that's helped by reflection, not just meditation, to reflect on that and to look at that so I think I'll stop here and um, there's some other material maybe that I can bring in next week, but just to um really uh, invite us, again, to look for where we lose balance, look for what's challenging, have that be part of our practice, and then in more protected environments, (coughs) cultivate that sense of equanimity, of balance, of calm through mindfulness. And know, maybe just one last point, know that equanimity is not the same as calm. That's an important point. Equanimity doesn't mean that our minds are necessarily calm. It can be the still point in the midst of the hurricane. There can be a lot happening, but there's some quality of balance. So it's more the balance quality. We, we may be calm, we may not be calm. Calm sometimes helps us to develop equanimity, but equanimity isn't the same thing as calm. That's a really important point, because we may think, oh, I need to be calm. We can be equanimous in having an awful lot happening. It just means we're non-reactive. So there's sometimes parts of our lives where we're really, really busy, a lot happening, a lot coming through. We may be doing work where there's all sorts of stuff happening. You maybe you work in a hospital or some other kind of work where there's a tremendous amount happening. You can be um, centered and equanimous, but not necessarily have this calm, serene lake of a mind. Maybe part of it's like that. So let's why don't we Uh, Can you hold your question, like, one minute? And so let's, let's just sit for a minute or so to let it settle, and then we'll talk together. So, some time for talking together, Uh, please. Um,
3: What was the fourth pair? I have gain, loss, praise, blame, fame, disrepute.
0: Pleasure and pain, yeah. (coughs) And I'll try to bring in next time some somatic practices, which are wonderful, you know, it's literal. So some of this, the balance is a physical metaphor. It's a metaphor. And we can actually cultivate balance at the somatic level know and a lot of different practices I'll bring in one or two and then t- hopefully the next time I'm here uh, Tija can also bring in some it's really he's a you know an expert in, in that area other questions comments reflections please and let's say our names also as we speak uh,
3: my name is Patricia and uh, I, I was interested in trying to connect um, a remark that was shared uh, about our personal and collective responses to these kind of world events which send shockwaves literally around the world.
0: Yeah.
3: Um and that speaker was trying to connect it with equanimity.
0: Yeah.
3: Um and wondering how how it's connected. Yeah. Um and so now Donald I, I ask as you give us this paradigm of eight yeah. winds. I can't I can't I can't connect. I can't see those, um, I can't connect that paradigm to what we actually experience, um, again, in a personal and collective level, when these shockwaves um,
0: are, are released. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm having
1: trouble fitting t- those
0: categories to. Into your personal experience, well, I mean, or more I mean, the I mean, collective. I'm I'm collective? Yeah. what's happening collectively. Yeah, That's yeah. OK. Oh. Um. <clears throat> Yeah, uh, you're referring to the to the death of Osama bin Laden, <laughs> Yes. particularly. Um, but it could be an example. I mean, because this happens yeah, to us yeah. in our collective life, and yet we are invaded, and we do, ha- and we are reactive. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think I think one could could um, ask. Um, I mean, it's it's complex and kind of you know, we're, we're encouraged to train in equanimity with kind of not the most difficult experiences or situations, degree of, you know, degree of that, that's degree of difficulty, 50 or 100 out on a 10 point scale. Mm-hmm. And we're, we're encouraged to train earlier. That, but that's not an excuse, I don't want to not answer the question, but just to say that often our minds go to the most difficult situations where it's harder to make the connections and the real training occurs and w- ha- what actually lets us be better able to, to get to the higher degree of difficulty is working with the lower degree of difficulty, just like in any kind of training. So that, that's important to say. Um, you know, I've, uh, I've actually been teaching a non-residential retreat the last two days, so I haven't followed things real closely in the media, but I did look at them carefully on Sunday night and Monday morning and actually, you know, have a lot of, lot of thoughts. But where we, could, you know, where we could see, you know, the eight worldly winds, we could see how those are manifesting in some of the collective responses. You know, for example, a sense of uh, gain or loss could be manifest, and you can see a sense of gain in the collective, I've, you know, again, I'm not fully informed, but people who are exulting in this as if it's a sports event or something right that that uh, that could fit into kind of the reaction that we call gain you know it fits in that in that model or um, um, I think also for me um, it's a very challenging the French philosopher Merleau-Ponty once said when nations Make discourses about foreign policy; truth goes out the window. <laughs> I, um, I, I think that I tend to agree with that. You know that that it's things are happening in terms of what's talked about at a different level than trying just to understand.
1: Right?
0: That that's my view, um, and um, I think it's also helpful. Equanimity could be helped by having something like a very long-term perspective, like I was quoting from Dr. Ari Rotney and um, Joanna Macy, to see some of what's happening in a 50-, 100-, 200-year perspective. That can help one to understand these occurrences. We get, you know, newspapers are notoriously unwilling to give any historical uh, framework for for the events. So we have to do that ourselves. You know, and to see the large contours of history and to understand the situation, that can, that's part of what can give equanimity, you know, or give some sense of um, these things are happening for reasons and here are these larger historical factors that are coming into play, you know, which are, you know, if I would try to apply it to this situation, that could take a while to talk about, but clearly there are a number of different factors involved, uh, and, you know, it's, it's quite complex, you know, whether it's... Uh, um, so that's a hint. You know, th- I, I don't want to take all the time to talk about that, which it would be if I would go further with that. I 'd be happy to talk about that after we finish with anyone who's interested, because I have, have a lot of thoughts on that, and uh, but I'd I prefer not to focus on that entirely because there, there are other like I say, it's high degree of difficulty, complex, and uh, I think we learn by working with the very personal as well. So did you have, did you have something? That's right. So, time to rebuild. Excuse me? It's a time to rebuild. That this is a time to re- for who to rebuild? Well, there was somebody that was commenting on the financial system and what you were just saying kind of speaks to that. Yep.
2: Yeah. OK, Thanks. Please Please, Malcolm. Um, as I was leaving my house to come here this morning, I was actually saying out loud, "I am very angry, I am very angry." I just got off the phone, leaving it uh, to give a pledge to KPFA, which I've been listening to, and uh, the program was a uh, was a recording of a, of a speech that Chris Hedges gave actually in Berkeley mm. on, on Monday evening.
1: Mm. <coughs>
2: And he was, I mean, I mean, this actually goes much further than Osama Bin Laden. This go, he was actually talking for 90 minutes about the huge litany of world issues that, I mean, with, with, with we're all familiar with. And to me, you know, the, the 100, 200-year perspective is actually extremely bleak uh, in terms of humanity, um, rightly or wrongly. Um, whether or not we can achieve uh, a very radical transformation uh, very quickly, I'm, I'm not sure, but, um, you know, I have what I think the Buddhists call grief for the, for the world, you know. Um, and, mm-hmm. uh, you know, in, in terms of trying to achieve any kind of equanimity uh, in those terms, I find almost impossible, you know. And that's why I think, you know, your, your reference to um, starting on something a little easier
0: is,
2: you know, well taken.
0: <laughs> yeah thank you. Thank you, Malcolm. Um, you know I, I'd be willing to devote a whole session to all of this. I do reflect on it a lot, and I've thought you know about it and written on these materials. I don't know if anyone would come. Mm. <laughs> How many would sure. How many would come? Okay, well, because it's something I do think about, but I, I also uh, know... I want I try to be careful about that because there's also a very important place here just for personal refuge and healing, hmm. and I try to g- give a clear indication. You know, some people, uh, maybe I'll just be clear on that I'm talking about that. But, but yeah, I think the, um, personally, I'm short-term pessimist, long-term
1: optimist, really? Oh, <laughs> personally. Okay. I'd love to know why.
0: <laughs> how? <laughs> well, how long term are you talking? <laughs> 100,000 years. <laughs> um, but, uh, but I think, you know, actually, um, I think your point about the degree of difficulty is quite important. I think the world tremendously needs people who are well-trained in equanimity. And I think we get our training by looking at the lower degree of difficulty, the very personal. And we train and train and train. I think, you know, I mean, I've thought about this a lot. You know, part of my motivation for developing this program at Spirit Rock called the Path of Engagement Program, which, you know, was a training program. We had about 50 people from all over North America for two years and finished about almost two years ago. And probably you will do another version of it in 2013 that part of my motivation was for helping to train people. That's been really my, a lot of my own work, is yeah. to train people to become more skilled at, at bringing the qualities of equanimity and balance and mindfulness and good heart into social service, social action at all sorts of levels. You know, Some of the people in the program were working you know, as doctors, as nurses. We, had, we, actually had, we actually had someone from the U.S. military we had police officer in the program, you know, that person, the person from the military, his vision was that the U.S. military would become a great peace force. Oh, wow. mm-hmm. yeah. Well, someone has to hold that vision. Right? <laughs> Again, long-term, long-term vision. And would be something that would do good, would help respond to natural disasters, would be a force for peace. You know, it's, of course, it's a long way away, but that was his vision. We had a police officer who was... And, uh, you know, my hope was to train people further to work in this and keep on developing the skills. You know, and some of them were working in, on larger dimensions of things, you know, larger larger systems. And I think that training is really, really important, you know, in on all sorts of ways, you know, that... Um, uh, for people who can actually uh, be able, on whatever level it is—personal, interpersonal, community, organizational, or engaging in larger uh, systems—to to keep some balance, keep some perspective, know what to do with anger, frustration, and all that, and to have trained in that. I think that's really crucial. It's something that I think all of us uh, might do. Um, please, time for one or two more. And David, do you have a hand up too?
2: to this discussion yeah. is that uh, I feel the potential for my own transformation and if I can do it so
0: can everybody else yeah. and, and so can the world. That's right. Mm-hmm. And and that's I, that's that's very nicely said. I have how many have felt something like that? That that there's a way in which our deeper faith in the long term, I think the deepest grounding of that is our knowledge of our own transformation. I think that's close to what you're saying. And that's certainly how I ground it. And And sometimes it takes us really, really being quiet to have that sense. I know that's true for me, that sometimes only in the depth of a retreat will I really feel the faith. Because we get, we become, like you were saying, I think it was Beverly, right? you use the word cynicism. I think we become cynical. Right. And cynicism is actually a defense mechanism not to feel the pain, <laughs> basically. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, from what I've seen in, in myself and others, that it's actually a kind of defense mechanism. We think a certain way because it's actually our hearts are a little broken. You know, our hearts are somewhat broken by what's happening. And uh, you know, so, um, I'll just refer any, any of you who are interested in this realm. Joanna Macy's work is amazing. If you don't know her, read her work. And go, to, she's 82 now, go to events with her. She's been a friend and mentor and um, also we've taught together. And, uh, so I think that resting in and going deeper in oneself, in my experience, um, gives me the basis for some faith and optimism, because I know, in a way, this is partly a response also to your question, uh, you know, when I, when I did a month of retreat in March, when I came out, world events seemed to me to be really kind of like this surface-level dance. You know, like not really dealing with, re- just like this, these reactions, far removed really from dealing with real issues. Especially true when you look to like the Congress or something like that. It's like <laughs> theater, you know. It's like, and I, I worked in the U.S. Congress once, so I'm not saying that totally from a distance. I worked in the U.S. Congress when I was uh, in college for for a summer, and I had that sense when I was 19. You know that 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 it was it was a play based on need to be reelected, and that because of that, very few people actually wanted to deal seriously with issues. And that means it all becomes theater, a lot is, so much is theater. And it's like a few levels above reality, so to speak. I saw that more clearly after the retreat. So um, again, I think this grounding in one's own experience is not just important for one's own personal balance, but I think it gives one the perspective, ultimately, that helps one to operate with very challenging issues, whether they're personal, interpersonal, organizational, or collective. So, yeah. Um, please.
3: I was just thinking about the quote that you read from Martin Luther King. <coughs> yeah. And the piece that I pulled out from that that I think speaks to um, also how if I can transform, the world can transform, is it's yeah. one of the things he was thinking about when he needed his faith then was because how of how he would appear for the people who were listening to him. Yeah. And I think that we can draw on whatever it is you know that our behavior in the world actually has a calming effect or an effect
0: on yeah. the
3: people that we're with and that we can aid in transformation that one as well.
0: Thank yeah, you. yeah, that's not just dramatic events, but, but our very presence, you know, and in very simple ways, you know, simply when you receive a nasty word and you don't react right back, that's making peace in small undramatic ways that... Should be in the newspapers, you know, like, yeah. like yeah. Jan. <laughs> Jan was non-reactive in this situation. Headlines. Headlines. <laughs> okay. Maybe must uh, last, last two. We'll, I'll try to be real brief, please.
3: Mm-hmm. Personally, and even in a collective situation.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: Um, just as an example, I was listening to a story about Martin Luther King and I had a challenge to have equanimity while listening to her story. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I, I had this challenge with him and with some other people because of knowing some things about his personal life mm-hmm. where he wasn't fact with what I consider to be integrity. Mm-hmm. Um, and that hits me personally and triggers things that I've right. been through. Right. So I think, you know, and so but and yet I'm I'm challenged, as I'm hearing the story, to hear the good in the story and have the vision right. that you're putting forth. And right. I think I come yeah. across that even in situations working with other people for a good cause. There can be interpersonal oh, yeah. difficulties, yeah. and I find that that's where I get
0: up. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, but, but just in naming like that to to... To see in situation where do I get triggered? That's why the eight worldly winds are so good because it's naming the triggers, and if we can name that saying, well, I got triggered here, and I'd like to appreciate that aspect. I think that's the way to that's you're on the way to working with it. It's challenging, you know. It's challenging. I know that's been a challenge for me originally when I was with teacher, you know, with teachers that. Um, you know, for a long time, I wanted every teacher of mine to be completely perfect, and if I saw certain flaws, mm-hmm. they're out, you know, forget them. You know, and it took a while to sort of say, okay, well, there are these problems with the teacher, but I can learn here. It's kind of similar, I think, to what you're saying, and that that's not easy. But it involves really identifying, maybe being a little more precise with where do I get triggered and what's the benefit, and actually being clear like that. So... Okay, good. So this could go on for a long time. We didn't even resolve the international issues <laughs> <laughs> quite yet. <laughs> we need minutes minutes a little more time. Uh, let's just sit quietly for a minute or two. And I hope that many of us really want to look uh, carefully in the next week at... Um, The eight wins, pleasure and pain, gain and loss, fame and disrepute, praise and blame. You might take all of them, you might take just one set and look at that for the whole week, or have your radar up when that comes up. Look for what knocks you off balance. And also to devote time just to strengthening the balance in you know, whatever way. So I'll invite us to set intentions for the next period of time, if that feels suitable. And to remember that we practice both for ourselves and for others. And may the fruits of our practice and our time together be shared uh, in explicit and also implicit ways with all of those with whom we come in contact and then beyond, beyond that immediate circle of contact to all beings for their benefit, healing, and ultimately freedom.